My name is Anna Urberry, and you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Climate Briefing. This is the first episode we're recording after COP26, and it's a really fascinating one. So what I've done in this episode is to conduct shorter interviews with a range of interesting people, asking them what they make of the overall COP26 outcome, but also zooming in on specific issues like climate finance and loss and damage. I start by speaking to Camilla Bourne from the UK government, who is a policy advisor to the COP26 president. That interview is followed by a conversation with Farhana Yamin, who is an advisor to the Climate Vulnerable Forum, which is a partnership of 55 countries highly vulnerable to climate change. Really, really fascinating conversation. After that, I speak to the EU's head of delegation, Jacob Virksman, who provides us with the EU's take on the Glasgow deal. And then I go on to discuss climate finance with Aysatou Kamara, who is a climate finance negotiator for the least developed countries. Last but not least, I really felt that this deal on Article 6 needed some explaining. So the episode finishes with an interview with Aglaya Espelage, who works for the Perspectives Climate Group and who knows essentially all there is to know about Article 6 and carbon markets. Extremely, extremely helpful. So I'm sure everyone is jumping up and down with excitement and that you can't wait to listen to these fascinating COP26 conversations. But before I let you indulge, I thought I'd just provide a very quick recap of what COP26 was about and what it aimed to achieve. So COP26 was the 26th edition of the UN's Climate Change Conference. It took place in Glasgow in Scotland between October 31st and November 13th of this year. And it was hosted by the UK government. Italy presided over a preparatory meeting in Milan earlier in the autumn. COP26 was a really important conference, and there are several reasons for this. One is simply the urgency of the climate change crisis. We know that we need to reduce emissions by 45% by 2030, compared to 2010 levels, to have a decent chance of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees and avoiding the most catastrophic impacts of climate change. So there is a real urgency to act now. We can't wait. Another reason why COP26 was so important was its special task. The Paris Agreement follows a certain bottom-up logic where each party or government itself decides by how much it intends to reduce its emissions during a certain period. These national emission reduction targets are called nationally determined contributions or NDCs. The first round of targets were submitted in the run-up to COP21 in Paris But when put together, they weren't ambitious enough to limit warming to well below 2 degrees, never mind 1.5 degrees. But the Paris Agreement is designed to increase ambition over time. And ahead of COP26, governments were supposed to submit new and more ambitious targets. COP26 also covered other important issues like climate finance, adaptation, loss and damage, and negotiations on outstanding elements of the Paris rulebook, which, simply put, can be described as an implementation guide for the Paris Agreement. The UK government was as COP president also urging countries to make ambitious commitments on especially coal, cars, cash and trees. And its overarching goal for COP26 was, of course, to keep 1.5 degrees alive, which I'm sure you've all heard Alok Sharma saying. So what was actually achieved in Glasgow then? Well, over 150 governments did put forth new or updated nationally determined contributions. Climate Action Tracker estimates that when all 2030 commitments are added up, they put us on track for warming of around 2.4 degrees by the end of the century. 
this does put us in a better position than where we were before, but we're still obviously not on track for well below two degrees or 1.5 degrees. However, the main deal coming out of COP26, the Glasgow Climate Pact, requests governments to revisit and strengthen their NDCs next year. So there is a hope that ambition will increase even more in the short term so that we do not let this important 1.5 degree target slip out of reach. The Glasgow Climate Pact covers a range of issues, mitigation, adaptation, finance, loss and damage, and I won't go through everything it contains here, and will of course be touching on many of the important aspects in the interviews, but I thought I'd mention a few things to give you a flavour of what was agreed. On adaptation, developed countries are urged to double the finance they provide for adaptation by 2025 compared to 2019 levels. Parties also agreed to set up a work programme on the global goal on adaptation. On finance more broadly, governments note with, I quote, deep regret that the 100 billion has not been met and developed countries are urged to deliver fully on this pledge through to 2025. The Glasgow Climate Pact also emphasizes the need to mobilize climate finance from all sources and to increase support for developing countries beyond the annual 100 billion. When it comes to mitigation, I will already mention this request for governments to revisit and strengthen their targets in 2022. Governments also decided to set up a work program to scale up mitigation ambition and action this decade. And for the first time ever, fossil fuels are mentioned in a COP decision. On loss and damage, parties agreed to establish a dialogue on loss and damage finance and to provide the so-called Santiago network with funds to support technical assistance related to loss and damage. Developed countries and relevant organizations are also urged to provide additional and enhanced support for activities addressing loss and damage. So those are a few things that were agreed. Another important issue to mention is that governments finally, after years of negotiations, managed to finalize the Paris rulebook, including the tricky and complicated discussions on Article 6. There were also several new deals and initiatives announced at COP26, including on halting deforestation, phasing out oil and gas production, and ending public finance for fossil fuel projects overseas, just to give a few examples. But that's definitely enough of me talking. Now it's time for the interviews. First out is Camilla Bourne from the UK government. I really hope you enjoy listening. So I'm very pleased to be joined today by Camilla Bourne, who is uh, the COP president's policy advisor in the UK government's cabinet office. Camilla, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Thank you for having me. So we're recording this just a few days after COP26, and I'm very interested in getting your impression on the COP26 outcome. Are you pleased with what was achieved and what are the most important results in your view? I think we got a lot more than we could have expected. And so that makes me very pleased and heartened by what the international process can do when countries come together around a shared goal. And I think we really achieved that at COP26. In terms of what I'm particularly proud of, there are a few elements which I think are quite game changing. So the first of those I'd say is that countries agreed they would come back on their 2030 commitments. So strange quirk of the Paris Agreement, yes, countries are due to come back in 2025 to put forward new commitments, but those ones are for 2030 onwards. And what countries decided in Glasgow is that the science was too stark and they need to do more this decade. There was the possibility that if we didn't go further, the limit on temperature to 1.5 degrees could slip between our fingers. And so there was an agreement to come back 
over the next few years with more commitments, with more action for this crucial decade. So that was the first thing I was really positive about. Second is we saw a, a whole new approach to international cooperation between the rich world and the poor world around the response to climate impacts. So both on adaptation, we saw the doubling of adaptation finance, and also on loss and damage. Previously, this conversation had been incredibly polarised. And instead, we saw an openness to talking about how we work practically on the reality of loss and damage. Sadly, at 1.1 degrees of warming, we are seeing loss and damage occur, and we need to work together to be able to address that. So that was the second thing that I was particularly heartened by. And then the third element is around the inclusion of the language on coal and fossil fuel subsidies. Going into this, I never thought that we would get that language in the UNFCCC. This is a big innovation. We've never seen conversations around particular sectors recognised by 197 parties. That is the global economy in its entirety. And that is remarkable. And exactly what we need, it sort of represents a growing up of the UNFCCC process. And I think that was also complemented by the range of sectoral commitments that we managed to broker on the sidelines, not quite the 197, but a big clusters of countries who are taking this seriously and moving forward on these key sectors, which can be really important for action in this decade, if that's coal, if that's methane, if that's vehicles, if that's deforestation. Thanks very much. However, a lot depends on what happens now, next year and in the coming years. You mentioned earlier this request for countries to come back in 2022 already with revised indices. What do you think is needed now to really push and encourage countries to up their game, both on mitigation, adaptation, finance and loss and damage in the run up to COP27? And how do you think the UK presidency will be working with Italy and Egypt to achieve a successful outcome at COP27? So on the first of those, I think that this COP in itself has changed the game. And I think that gives confidence to a lot more countries. One thing that was really clear to me from the process of COP26, so the two weeks, but also the run-up, is that the middle-income countries really came to the party. And I think it's really important to, to remember that this is the first time that the whole world has been part of a global climate agreement. Before we had global climate agreements that were just the developed countries, and now we see all countries being part of it. So I think that dynamic has changed things. I also think that the return on ambition next year, it will probably look a little bit different to how it has done before. One, we have some big countries who still haven't come forward with their NDCs, so India, for example, and I think that will energise the system and, and the conversations. We might see countries come forward with changes in their targets now that there is more confidence this is possible. There are greater market shifts because all countries are coming forward. But we might also see countries come forward with more specificity around how they will deliver. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the importance of that. That is also an, another important dynamic that we'll need to move forward and then finally, I mean, as it always comes down to on, on anything, what is the thing that, that really moves things forward? And that's the money. And one of the things that was very positive about the last two weeks is previously, perhaps some countries have been a bit sceptical about this idea of shifting the trillions, seeing it as a kind of European preoccupation and, you know, really instead trying to focus on the 100 billion. And we did focus on the 100 billion. But I do think that a lot more countries are actually saying, wait a second, we want a piece of that trillions too. We need those trillions if we're going to properly move forward and be able to deliver at scale. So I think the progress that we'll need to see in the finance sector will be quite large, but all the ingredients are there. We just need to pull them together and, and bake them into the right kind of cake. Final question. Is there anything you were hoping that COP26 would achieve, which wasn't achieved? 
That's a very good question. Not one that I have thought about. I mean, honestly, just as a very instinctive reaction, no, not really. And I don't think that's because there isn't a lot more that needs to be done. There absolutely is. And, you know, I've just talked for a few minutes about what I think is positive. Another thing that's really positive is completion of the Paris rule book. I mean, that was a huge amount of work and it took six years to get that done. And, and that's really heartening because that includes rules around transparency in particular. And I think this is one of the conversations that has started at the COP, but has not concluded. And so perhaps this is something that isn't for, for the previous COP, but is for the future. And that is the conversation around accountability around the commitments. We got lots of commitments. We do have in place different mechanisms and tools to be able to take forward those commitments and work out where they go next and how they're delivered. But that piece around transparency, being able to see what everyone is doing, building that confidence in that way and having that accountability is something that I think will go from strength to strength in conversations over the next few years. Camilla Bourne, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be joined by Farhana Yamin, who is the Deputy Chair of the Expert Advisory Group to the Climate Vulnerable Forum. Farhana is also an Associate Fellow at Chatham House and a Senior Advisor to Systemic. Farhana, it's so lovely to see you. Thanks for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you're an advisor to the Climate Vulnerable Forum, and you've been advising climate vulnerable developing countries on the UN climate negotiations for three decades now. What do you make of the COP26 outcome? And what are the most climate-vulnerable nations saying about it? Well, the Climate Vulnerable Forum was set up in 2009 as a way of making sure that the voice of the vulnerables was heard. At that time, we had a big COP, COP15, and the interest of the small countries was barely impacting the negotiations. Now, in 2021, we have 55 members of the Climate Vulnerable Forum, mainly the small island countries, lots of countries from the least developing countries and some Latin American countries. And they felt deeply, deeply disappointed with the Glasgow outcome. If you look at their press releases from the Alliance of Small Island States, from the LDCs, if you look at the footage from the last night of the plenary, they felt very disappointed at the way in which the final decision was then further weakened. They have not achieved what they came to Glasgow for, which was an increase in ambition that closed the gap between what's now on the table in terms of emissions reductions by the biggest countries. Our own emissions, these 55 countries, are less than 5% of global emissions. We represent more than a billion of the world's population. So our own emissions, no matter what we do, no matter how ambitious our own NDCs are, and some of them are very ambitious, by the way, they're putting forward targets for phasing out coal for going switching to renewables by 2030. So no matter what we do, we need the big countries to respond and to act. And sadly, that that wasn't the case. You know, China did make some notable announcements to to end overseas coal and to peak domestic emissions by 2025. That was new, but it didn't table an NDC. And so we've had to fight just for countries to table what they said that they would table, i.e. put on, you know, just to meet their commitments, what they promised that they would do legally under the Paris Agreement. So that was disappointing. It was also very disappointing. The second part of what they came to do was to make sure that there was adequate funding for climate impacts and for switching to 
low emissions, climate compatible uh, strategies. So again, there was some progress, but this idea that the 100 billion would flow from 2020 was reneged on. So that that money has not materialized. Only 80 billion was forthcoming. We're now told that the richer countries will put that 100 billion on the table by 2023, but they did not commit to making good the shortfall between 2020 and 2023. And we've had to fight for 50-50 in terms of the split between mitigation and adaptation. So it seems, which again was agreed 10 years ago. So there was a lot of fighting for what was already agreed, which exhausted everyone. And then in terms of the final you know, negotiations on loss and damage, which again is uh, agreed in the Paris Agreement, there was no new breakthrough. There's the promise of now a dialogue, a workshop. But on a personal front, you ask me, you know, I've been involved for 30 years. We have had so many dialogues. We have had so many discussions. We need to find a way to fulfill what is now in the Paris Agreement, which sets out a framework for loss and damage. We have the Warsaw Mechanism that has been agreed that is up and running, this, this new network called the Santiago network. But, you know, technical assistance and a bit of capacity building isn't going to be enough. We need actually a moment of truth and a moment of solidarity. And that's what was missing and left to a lot of disappointment as people went flew home. They're always going to come back. We have to come back. We don't have any other choice but to come back to the UN. It's one of the few places our voices can be heard. We're not there for the G20 and the G8s and the G7s and the G2s, you know. Um, so we have nothing but the climate negotiations to make our needs and our voices heard. And we'll be back in June, hoping that that workshop and hoping that there are new commitments tabled by the end of the year, which is also what was agreed. Thanks very much. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on what the asks were on loss and damage specifically, and perhaps give your thoughts on how you see this agenda developing over the next few years, because as you say, it's very important. Yeah, I think loss and damage is basically what happens when you don't do enough mitigation and you don't do enough adaptation. It's the residual sum of people actually having to cope with lives and livelihoods being destroyed as a result of climate-induced impacts. You know, there is no such thing as natural weather anymore. Most of the impacts that are happening will now just repeat and get worse we're already, as I said, at nearly 1.2 degrees. We're on a pathway to 2.4 degrees by the end of this decade. And so what the developing world is asking for is a recognition that we need to move very fast to accepting responsibility for these impacts that are happening and multiplying and often adding to often other instability and political conflict and other problems. And what had been expected was a commitment to find additional sources of funding for this, not to take it out of the 100 billion. As I said, the 100 billion itself didn't materialise, but to actually stick to the provisions of the Paris Agreement and, and find additional sources of funding to put on the table. There was some glimmer of hope because at the very beginning of the conference, Scotland, the host of COP26, Nicola Sturgeon's government put uh, loss and damage funding on the table it was a small amount for, but, you know, they're a small country out of their climate justice fund and a doubling of their aid. They put one million 
pounds on the table for loss and damage. They were the first rich country to acknowledge that now we need to move beyond platitudes. We need to actually start experimenting, pioneering uh, and helping communities. And by the end of the COP, I think Belgium, a Walloona region, had joined them. But no other large country joined the lead of the Scottish government. In They then doubled their funding, by the way. And also some philanthropies stepped up and said that they would match and start to work on setting up a Glasgow loss and damage facility. So this, is, this was the expectation that there would be concrete support on the table. But I think that the fear that some of the larger countries, especially the richer countries, have that this is just the thin end of the wedge and will open the door for floodgates of liability and compensation has really soured the negotiations and is not reflecting the compromise and the agreements that were made in Paris, where developing countries agreed that there would be no liability and compensation in the way that Article 8, you know, which is the loss and damage article, would be approached. And so it seems that there's a deliberate attempt to keep raising liability and compensation, even when we've taken that off the table. And we've just said, you know, it's important to acknowledge and provide support and assistance. Uh, we don't have to decide, you know, the legality of it. We're not asking for the legalities of it to be provided at this point. We're just asking for the reality to be acknowledged that this is happening and we need to respond. And it was going to continue to happen as the national targets and pledges remain so inadequate. Rana Yamin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by Jacob Berksman, who is head of delegation for the EU in the UN climate negotiations. Jacob, thanks so much for taking the time to join me here on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. So I'd like to start by asking you to give your overall impression of what was achieved in Glasgow. Has sufficient progress been made? Well, I think I agree with those that say that um, a significant step forward was made, but the, the, the but is obviously very important as well as the, as the step forward. In terms of step forward, I think, I think we saw the Paris machinery working. So the idea that we set it in Paris that every five years we would come back to existing levels of ambition, we would look at the science, um, we would convene political leaders from around the world, and we would take a step forward in terms of our ambition. I think we saw that with regard to cutting emissions. I think we saw that with regard to the delivery of, of more climate finance. We've seen that a little bit uh, less, but still of growing importance with regard to countries' commitments to, to do more on adaptation. But when you compare that to what the science requires, uh, obviously we, we still fall short and there's, there's more that needs to be done uh, at the global level, but also very importantly, domestically, to make sure that, that all of those those targets that were set and revised, all those pledges that were made, uh, including the very important net zero pledges, are, are actually backed by the implementation of domestic policy. Thanks so much. The Glasgow Climate Pact calls for parties to accelerate efforts towards the phase down of unabated coal power and the phase out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. And the text was watered down a bit over the course of the negotiations, but COP26 still marks the first time that fossil fuels are mentioned in a COP decision. How important is this in, in your view? Well, I think it is significant that we've begun to focus on specific 
sources of energy, specific kinds of policies uh, in a way that we haven't done before. There's a general approach of, of everything being nationally determined in the, in the UNFCCC and in the Paris process. But here, the, the logic of, of reaching net zero is forcing us to confront aspects of our economy that simply aren't sustainable, including the use of coal and the use of fossil fuel subsidies that, that must be phased out if we're going to achieve net zero by mid-century and, and to avoid more than 1.5 degree global average temperature rise. So that's a very, very important step forward. I think, however, the, the media paid a little bit too much attention to that final debate in plenary in the shift of the words from a, a phase out of coal to a phase down of coal. I think what's most important to acknowledge is that everyone recognizes that, that coal is incompatible with Paris. It's just that there is a, a, a difference of opinion as to whether all countries, regardless of their current dependence on coal, regardless of whether their economies are growing in terms of their energy demands, should be making the same kinds of commitments with regard to coal. And I think this is where India and China pushed back, insisting that asking everyone to bring back home the message that coal must be phased out uh, was a little bit too much for, for them to bear politically. As you mentioned earlier, a lot depends on what happens next. Uh, the Glasgow Climate Pact, for instance, calls on governments to revisit their targets next year. What do you think is needed to really encourage and, and push and incentivize governments around the world to be more ambitious when it comes to climate change? Well, I mean, this work program on mitigation is also something very new. We've heard lots of calls in the past to create agenda items dedicated to adaptation, but there's never prior to this uh, decision that we took in Glasgow a, an agenda item dedicated to mitigation. And now we have that in the form of this, uh, this work program, and we've committed to delivering a draft decision on what that increased ambition on mitigation should look like by, by the end of this year. So with only the, the work that we'll do in Bonn uh, to contribute to that. So it's going to be a real challenge to see how we work on that issue, that collective conversation about how and who um, should do more, uh, something that's never really uh, taken place before. So I think it's, a, it's an important breakthrough for our process. What will be interesting to see is whether or not the politics can, can bear it and uh, whether, whether we can get through it without a great deal of finger pointing and acrimony, which uh, doesn't help us to, to move forward. But we'll see um, how, how we manage that. But that, that work program, I think, is a, a very important development in, in uh, the international negotiations as, as well. I think importantly, we also agreed to have these annual ministerial sessions on pre-2030 ambition to keep the, the pressure on, uh, not just at the COP in Egypt, but at all uh, subsequent COPs until presumably we begin to move beyond 2030. Otherwise, I think there was a real risk that the, the next round of, of discussions on ambition and global attention to ambition would have been delayed until the first global stock take, which will likely focus on post-2030 rather than pre-2030 ambition. And there's lots of language in the Glasgow Climate uh, Pact that reminds us that this is the critical decade, uh, that if we're going to reach 1.5 and not exceed it, uh, we have to keep the pressure on in the near term and not, not now begin to focus uh, exclusively on post-2030. Uh, post How important is finance in this ambition-raising discussions? Because at COP26, a lot of developing countries call for enhanced levels of climate finance. And we, of course, saw the start of the deliberations on the new climate finance goal. How do you see these discussions developing going forward? 
Well, it, it's it's critically important, and I think it was it was very significant that Glasgow acknowledged and reaffirmed the goal that we set for for developed countries to to reach 100 billion US dollars a year uh, by 2020, and and that we acknowledge that we have missed that. So the the acknowledgement that we've missed it, the commitment to to follow through on it was was very important. If you look at the NDCs from developing countries, many of them are conditioned on finance being available. And the $100 billion is, a, is an important symbolic down payment on the efforts of, of countries to make sure that those resources will be available. However, it's also important to keep in mind that, that achieving those NDCs will require much more than $100 billion a year, much more than donor countries can, can provide through taxpayer budgets. And the, the real challenge is about mobilizing financial flows more generally, both domestically within uh, all countries, but also tapping into the, the trillions of dollars of private sector investment that will go into energy sectors, transport sectors, and, and other forms of investment in the coming years. So the real question post-Glasgow is, is how do we mobilize that? Part of it, part of the answer might be in the context of the discussion on the post-2025 goal that was also initiated in Glasgow. But I think more importantly, it's about conversations that are increasingly happening in global financial institutions around the world, whether they're the multilateral development banks or they're the, the, the pension funds uh, and other sources of, of private capital. And I think that Glasgow showed that COPs can be an important place where all of those financial actors can be convened to focus on the challenge, but uh, also an acknowledgement that the real action lies outside of the decisions that we can take at a COP. So how would you say the EU contributed to the COP26 outcome? Well, I think most importantly, it was in terms of leadership by example. We took the time between Paris and Glasgow to, to really not just enhance the level of ambition, but also to begin to put in place the domestic policies necessary to achieve that. Um, so we've committed under European law to reduce our emissions by at least 55% by 2030, but also to be net zero by 2050. And I think that was a very important benchmark to set for other countries. We also made a very significant contribution towards the climate finance challenge. A great deal of, of what was contributed to meet that $100 billion US uh, goal uh, came from the EU and, and EU member states. Uh, and then we made some additional finance commitments just before Glasgow as well, adding from the EU an additional 4 billion uh, euros towards that $100 billion, but also um, significantly adding to the size of the adaptation fund, a very important symbolic uh, fund for developing countries, leading it to be increased by another 100, 100 million euros. Um, so that was significant as well. And, and something that was a little less watched, uh, the EU also came forward with an adaptation communication, our indication of how seriously we're taking the impacts of climate change, uh, both regionally, but also at a member state level, to make sure that we're putting in place uh, the policies necessary to build resilience uh, at, the, at the local the member state, as well as the regional level. Jacob Berksman, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me today. It's been fascinating. It's a pleasure. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Aizatou Kamara, who is a deputy director in the Gambian Ministry of Finance and Economic Affairs. 
and a negotiator on climate finance for the least developed countries group in the UN climate negotiations. Aisa too, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me. How are you doing? I'm good, Anna. Thank you for reaching out to me as well. So COP26 had a very big kind of finance agenda, and uh, I don't think we'll have time to cover all of it, but hopefully we'll be able to touch on some of the main elements. I actually wanted to start with a question about this pledge to deliver 100 billion US dollars per year, because shortly before COP26, developed countries published a delivery plan for the 100 billion which showed that this goal, which should have been reached in 2020, would likely only be met in 2023. So in your view, how did this delay in delivering the goal impact the discussions at COP26, if at all? This goal was one of the major issues that we had discussed in Glasgow. When we arrived at Glasgow, we came with the knowledge that developed country parties goal of mobilizing 100 billion per year by 2020 had not been met and we anticipated that developed countries will recognize the gravity of the situation and work to address it in a most just and prompt manner however they had significant amount of resources to the least developed countries fund and the adaptation fund so we really think these are welcome commitments but from developed countries thanks so much COP26 also saw the start of the deliberations on a new finance goal for the post-2025 period. And I know you were involved in those discussions. Can you please tell us a little bit about that process? Yeah, that process too, we had really had push and pulls with developed countries because for us, we believe the process in achieving or coming up with a goal is really key but some substantial elements included that would enable us to come up with that goal or that would be included in that new goal. It's something that we need to discuss, start discussing as well. But it's unfortunate that developed country parties thought it was too soon for us to start discussing some substance of the new goal. So the procedural issues are the things that need to be discussed during COP26. So what was decided at the COP or the outcome we had from that negotiations was that there would be an ad hoc working group that would be established. And we believe this ad hoc working group, we hope that the deliberation under this will be something that is inclusive and transparent, and it would reflect the needs and cost of adaptation, mitigation and loss and damage in our countries. And we believe that we need to learn from the lessons from the 100 billion goal and its implementation needs to be carried over into the process that will take place for agreeing a new goal, a new quantified goal on climate finance. So really for us, we are disappointed by the procrastination of developed country parties who are pushing the timeline for deciding the new goal to, to the last two years before the goal is adopted. So discussing this matter with urgency over the coming years and pinning down not only the goal but also an action plan of how developed countries will mobilize finance to reach the goal will be crucial. So, and we do not want to see years and years of talk and little action. And from the new goal, we are looking for at least 50% of the goal to be for adaptation, and therefore at least 50% of the goal to be grant finance, which is very key for us LDCs. And this notes that mitigation finance 
finance will also require grant and higher concessional loans to provide effective action, but at a lesser extent than adaptation. Also, we think the goal must be informed by science and ensure a scale of target that is reflecting the true cost of um, climate action in our countries, including for adaptation, mitigation, and loss and damage. So we believe that we need a much clearer plan on how funds will be mobilized for the goal, including much greater commitment from developed country parties. And how do you think these talks will develop going forward? Do you think it will be difficult to reach an agreement ahead of 2025, or do you think it will be a walk in the park, so to speak? For sure, we don't think these talks would be an easy talk because for us, we are clear on what we want. Some of, some of the shortfalls that we had when the 100 billion goal was being mobilized and provided to us, we have seen that much of the things we had asked for during that process was not achieved. For example, still we have more funds going towards mitigation rather than adaptation. And for us, with this new goal, we want to ensure that adaptation, finance to adaptation is significantly increased. At least we need to have 50% of the climate finance goal to go into towards adaptation. And for us LDCs, to be frank, we can't afford to be taking up loans anymore because currently 66% of the climate finance that comes to, to LDCs, it's on loan basis. So for us, at least 50% of the climate resources that would be mobilized when this new goal is set should be grant-based. So we believe this would be an easy discussion. It's something that it would really be a talk of war between us and developing countries. And we are willing and ready for anything. And having finance for loss and damage too, it's it's key to us. And we believe this long new goal should provide support for loss and damage. So we believe it would be an easy negotiation or discussion. Thanks so much. So what other climate finance related outcomes at COP26 do you think were particularly important? And you're, of course, a negotiator for the LDC group for whom climate finance is a core priority. It would be interesting, just in closing, if you could also say something about your overall impression of COP26 when it comes to climate finance. Was it a good result? Was it a bad result? Was it a bit mixed bag? Thank you. To be fair enough, we have seen some improvements in the finance outcomes, but we believe we still have a long way to go on many fronts. Um, on a broader context, a key point that was covered in the COVID decision acknowledges the effects of increased indebtedness as a result of the coronavirus disease, which we welcome, but it does not acknowledge the effects of increased indebtedness as a result of climate impacts and disasters. We can see that in the decision text, there is no formal mention of supporting climate action in the context of ensuring our economic debt sustainability. For instance, like I mentioned before, loans accounted for more than 66% of the climate finance delivered to LDCs in 2018. Nonetheless, our countries require more adaptation action because adaptation does not generate commercial returns. So it necessitates the use of grant-based instruments. As a result, there is still massive gap in framing of the climate finance support being provided. On the other hand, 
Um, an other difficult part of the negotiation was also on providing the Standing Committee on Finance the mandate to support on a definition of climate finance to be presented at next COP. So there has been hesitation from developed countries. Um, we, we believe that definition and clarity is needed to ensure that climate finance reported are transparent and accountable and it prevents double counting and it helps us to ensure that funds provided are really new and additional. So having given the standing committee on finance the mandate to come up with a proposal on having a definition on climate finance is really key, but we did not manage to have such a decision. However, what, what we managed to have was an input from the standing committee on finance to bring to the next COP. So we believe this input would be important to consider and finally or eventually help to, for us to adapt a definition on climate finance. Isa Tukamara, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been really interesting speaking to you. All right. Thank you, Anna. So I'm very pleased to be joined by Aglaya Espelage, who is a consultant and project manager at Perspectives Climate Group and a true expert on Article 6 and carbon markets. Aglaya, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Yes, thank you. So I was hoping that you could help me break down and explain to listeners what actually happened at COP26 related to Article 6 on international carbon markets. Because after years and years of negotiations, we now have a deal. So could you please explain, as if you were talking to somebody who has you know, never heard of Article 6, what was agreed and what it means? Yes, it's actually a very exciting achievement because it was negotiated since 2016 how countries can cooperate with each other when they want to achieve their targets towards the Paris Agreement, their NDCs. So the idea of Article 6 is that it sets the guardrails and also enables this kind of cooperation, which can be both market-based and non-market-based. I mean, the key sticking points were regarding to international carbon market cooperation because of its technical complexity, but also because of the financial interests involved. So it's, of course, a key sticking point for, for everyone around the table. Everyone has their own interests. So overall, what was agreed is the guidelines that all governments must abide to when they engage in any form of international cooperation, which leads to the transfer of mitigation outcomes. So that can mean emission trading systems that are linked internationally, like between Canada and Quebec, or when there are uh, transfers of carbon credits between two governments towards their NDCs, but also from a government, from a host country, from a jurisdiction that is then used by an airline under Corsia. So these kind of general rules were uh, adopted with regard to Article 6.2. And these guidelines clarify how the government must account for these transfers, what kind of information they must report on it, and how they must show that they are respecting environmental integrity. And then we have now the, the rules and modalities and procedures put together for a centralized crediting mechanism under the Paris Agreement, where projects can be implemented or programs can be implemented that can then generate carbon credits. And these carbon credits can then be used 
for transfers that then fall under the scope of the Article 6.2 guidance, but they might also be used on the voluntary car markets or also in domestic schemes. So we have these two big articles for international car market cooperation that are now really spelled out. And the direction is given of how these will be implemented now in practice. And last but not least, not to forget, under the Paris Agreement, there's also the Article 6.8, that promotes also non-market approaches to international cooperation. And we will see now from next year onwards a work program on identifying the most relevant ones that are out there for parties and that help them in achieving their NDCs and then seeing how these can be further promoted. So how, how important was this deal? Because I think there were some fears that nothing would be agreed. It's obviously been very hard to, to come to a conclusion before are we in a better position now, do you think, in terms of achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement? Yes, I would say we are, because international car market cooperation is being recognized in many NDCs as an important tool to either mobilize finance, it helps countries that have you know, limited domestic means to mobilize finance for mitigation that is too expensive for them to achieve. But it's also recognized in so-called buyer countries NDCs when NDCs say, okay, this is how we can do domestically, but we can finance mitigation abroad, we'll buy the credits, the mitigation outcomes, and this is how we can raise ambition. So I think by setting the rules to allow this, we do help countries to be in a better position to reach the Paris Agreement targets. And if we wouldn't have had these rules, I do believe that many countries would still have gone ahead with these kinds of cooperation, but we would have seen a very fragmented approach to it. We wouldn't have like these common guidelines that we can all refer to, or we wouldn't have a centralized mechanism which can serve as a yardstick for all the other crediting mechanisms around and where the international community has the transparency and also the space to discuss the rules for it. So I do believe having these internationally agreed rules is a very important step forward. And of course, they come with compromise. There are, I think, some, some aspects in these rules that the different parties around the table don't like, but that is a bit how international conferences play out. So there are some compromises in them with regards to accounting, with regards to the use of old credits from the Kyoto Protocol, but overall they set the guardrails for robust accounting for the next years, for the next decades under the Paris Agreement, and that's a good thing. Following up on that quickly, it's going to be my last question. Are there any particular issues that we really need to kind of keep our eyes on? Because in the run-up to the summit, there were also some fears that a weak agreement could enable greenwashing and might kind of undermine the integrity of the Paris Agreement. I take it from you that you think the agreement is pretty good, pretty robust, but are there anything in particular that might constitute a bit of a risk going forward? Well, I do believe that one needs to really look very closely at how the accounting will then be done in the country's NDCs. I think for the NDCs that have a clear and robust quantification of their targets, it will be fine. But especially for the first round of NDCs, there are like some exemptions for those that don't have fully quantified targets. And one needs to see whether there's any sort of tricky accounting being done around these. This is a compromise to enable all parties to participate because there is no guidance on NDCs, so NDCs are very different. But I think that is one risk that we don't have like this very common accounting framework for all NDCs. And then I think what will be very important is to see how the details play out on reporting and review. 
and to make sure that the information is available on what kind of credits are being traded and are being used. And I think that's a very detailed and specific question that will only be negotiated now next year when one really looks at setting up the tables for reporting, but that will define how transparent the system is and how well international observers are able to look at it. And a last point is there's a constructive ambiguity, as negotiators would see, around the role of the voluntary carbon market and how credits that are traded there will be accounted for by governments. And the way I understand the rules now is voluntary carbon market actors can request an authorization from the governments that the government does not count these credits towards its own NDC and does a corresponding adjustment as the correct term is for, for that kind of accounting, which prevents in its most strongest form the risk of double counting. But the government is not obliged to do this for all voluntary carbon market actions. So if the voluntary carbon market actor never requests that authorization of transfer, then my understanding is transfers on the voluntary carbon market can happen without such an acknowledgement by the host country. Meaning there is the possibility of continuing to trade credits outside of the Paris Agreement that don't have these accounting rules attached to it. And I believe that it's now the task of the voluntary carbon market and all the standards and guidelines out there to ensure that they align now with the Article 6 rules and that we close this gap or this you know, regulatory void for the voluntary carbon market, because that may lead to greenwashing, especially if the credits are used for net zero or offsetting claims. A million thanks for talking to me today. Thank you very much. It was nice speaking to you. Dear listeners, that was all for this time, but do not despair. COP26 may be over, but the climate briefing continues. Ben and I will be back soon and we'll be bringing you more interesting conversations on international climate politics. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today. I hope you have a lovely evening or day, depending on where you are. Bye. Bye.